Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world in the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about After ISIS. The headlines of the week have been dominated by the killing of the leader of the so-called Islamic State, uh, Mr. Baghdadi, and the reactions which we have seen from Washington, as well as many other parts of the world. His killing comes after the last scraps of the Islamic State territory have been captured and taken away from the state, and many people are talking about mission accomplished. But the reality for many European countries is that the ISIS problem is just beginning because there are hundreds of European citizens who went to fight on behalf of the caliphate who have been detained, some of whom have now escaped, And there are huge questions about how European countries should deal with the question of the return of these foreign fighters. To help us make sense of what's going on, I have an all-star cast. From Turkey, we have Asla Aydin Tashbash, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who has actually been on the ground in the place where Baghdadi was was killed. And she will explain what things look like from there and and the Turkish perspective from events. And the other big theatre which is heavily involved in this is the United States of America, which is, I think, where Anthony Dworkin, another senior policy fellow at ECFR, is currently sitting. I'm actually sitting in the U.S. Army War College at West Point. Wow. So from the U.S. Army War College in West Point, we have Anthony Dworkin, who's also author of Beyond Good and Evil, Why Europe Should Bring ISIS Foreign Fighters Home, which is a brand new policy brief. So why don't we start with you, Asla? Do you want to explain a bit about how you see both the circumstances around Baghdadi's killing and what the, the kind of immediate consequences are? And then we can move on to this question about the foreign fighters. Well, Mark, it was an incredible event on Sunday uh, happening over the weekend, actually, because uh, last that we know, it was President Trump uh, announcing that ISIS is over and, uh, you know, withdrawal of U.S. troops. And very soon after that, two weeks after his announcement of withdrawal, we have uh, quite an amazing raid that with U.S. commandos, eight helicopters taking off from Iraq, and not from the Turkish border, which I thought was very conspicuous, and flying all the way across uh, Syria, northern Syria, and uh, carrying out a raid in a village five kilometers from the Turkish border in Idlib, a place we've talked about also on this podcast. Uh, It seems that Baghdadi had been there for a number of weeks. We also know by now that the informer, the tip came from a a Sunni Arab informer that the Kurds have, the Syrian Kurds, the Syrian Democratic Forces. All of this, of course, was sort of very confusing happening after uh, much debate and discussion. All of this uh, on the heels of a big debate about U.S. troop withdrawal and Trump greenlighting a Turkish incursion. It does seem to me that CENTCOM officials and uh, the Delta Force did not want to fly off from a Turkish base, even though that was much closer. 
And a day after this incident, uh, we know that a very senior Al-Qaeda member, a man by the name Al-Muhajir, was killed by a U.S. strike in Jurablus, in a town, again, on the Turkish border, controlled by Turkey. So there's a lot happening here, in addition to ISIS, in terms of the problems in the Turkish-U.S. relationship, the hasty U.S. withdrawal and everything. But if we get back to the actual scene, I think it's important that there was an former. It's important that U.S. commandos, the Delta Force, was able to get hold of a significant amount of information that shows the network and its capabilities, because this is, uh, I don't know how Anthony will see it, but I think this is clearly a, a network, a leader that was quite hands-on until recently. And I think there is a bit of a sort of an interesting situation when it comes to Idlib, because Idlib has, of course, been a, much, a point of much discussion, uh, Russia being accused of sort of war crimes and the Syrian regime for sure attacking civilians and hospitals and so on. But it's looking increasingly to everybody that like Idlib is a very dangerous place where you not only have various shades of jihadists, but also Al-Qaeda and also ISIS. So the discussion is back on Idlib, but this time much more restrained in terms of Turkish or European objections to uh, Russian or Syrian regime offensive on Idlib. And I think a final note about the border area. I haven't been to this village, of course, but to very nearby areas back in, at the beginning of the Syrian uh, civil war, which was then called a revolution. It's no longer called a revolution. Uh, but back in 2012, this was an open border. You could basically walk, just walk down from the olive orchard across. I was a journalist at the time. And, you know, Azaz and the ne- nearby villages and towns were entirely accessible to us. Beautiful, gorgeous places. I mean, biblical beauty with olive orchards and luscious and sort of rich soil. But also thinking back, and I go go back and think back about that time in my visit and, and sort of who, who I saw in terms of the Free Syrian Army. And I sort of revisit every encounter and every conversation I had. Even back then, you know, which was missed at, uh, around that time because everyone was focused on the atrocities by the Syrian regime. But, I, but there was already a very conservative and Salafist network that you could see among the fighters that were gathering in the north, that they all had emirs. And I had to, I remember as a journalist having to cover up in order to be able to interview Free Syrian Army and that there would be no shaking hands and whatnot. So again, in Subsequent visits to uh, some of these border towns, including a recent visit to Jarablus, I couldn't help notice that it's not just your ordinary Syrian conservatism or local conservative uh, appearances and whatnot. You do have a very clear hallmarks of a very Salafi build-up in the form of women not just wearing the full niqab, but also gloves and everything, which of course is not indigenous to this part of the world. It's not entirely surprising to me that Baghdadi ended up finding safe heaven in these towns, which had long become Salafist, uh, jihadist uh, safe heavens, both in terms of social engineering and kicking out the local population or converting them to a lifestyle that was not that is not necessarily indigenous to Sunni conservative areas. 
Anthony, I'd like to come on to the topic of foreign fighters quite soon. But before that, maybe you can talk a bit about how things look from the US. I mean, obviously, the parallels with the Bin Laden killing being drawn, not least by the president of the US at the moment. And that's obviously a crisis that you kind of follow very closely and, and talked about. What are the kind of main issues that have come out in, in the US? Well, as you say, President Trump was, who in many ways, I think, has kind of from the beginning competed with and measured himself against his predecessor, President Obama. This was his kind of parallel moment to Obama's killing of Osama bin Laden. And he was very keen to draw those parallels, even in a rather characteristically Trumpian way, seeming to claim that uh, killing Baghdadi was, you know, somehow more important and more significant than it had been for bigger. Of course, that's how he described it. But I think, you know, the view from the US is that this is a significant moment. I mean, Baghdadi was a kind of the driving force behind the creation of this extraordinary terrorist entity, which became the Islamic State, you know, which became the caliphate. He was a man with a very kind of strong vision of what he wanted to do. And he really did create something that was kind of new in the world of international terrorism. Having said that, though, what people here are saying is, you know, we shouldn't mistake uh, his death, significant as it is, with the kind of the end of ISIS. You know, ISIS has had a a relatively long history, if you trace it back to its origins as the Iraqi branch of Al-Qaeda. And it's had a lot of ups and downs and has shown a kind of, you know, consistent ability to adapt, to go undercover, to mutate and to survive. And there are still significant numbers of people around Iraq, around Syria, who were affiliated with ISIS. You know, there's no doubt it's on the defensive. Um, The point that Asli made about the intelligence benefit of the material seized in this raid is also being accentuated here. But, you know, I think what people here are saying is that it's this is a significant blow. ISIS is on the defensive. But if we sort of say mission accomplished now, you know, we've got the big man, then there's a danger, particularly given the instability in the region that Asla has been talking about, that the group has the capacity to come back. And so in the United States, it's very much playing into this debate about whether President Trump's moves to pull US forces out of Syria are going to, or to pull them back, or who knows what he's doing, are going to in some way create conditions that could allow the group to, you know, to reform in some ways. And it's also worth emphasizing that although Baghdadi was the kind of driving force behind ISIS, um, and he did have a, you know, a strong grasp of what was going on. He also had created the entity in a way that it can survive him. You know, he's been very elusive. He hasn't communicated directly a lot with other people within the organization. It has a kind of decentralized structure. And all of that, I think, you know, means that there still is the potential for it to develop and grow in different ways. So how much are there parallels also being drawn between the difficult relationship which the US had with Pakistan at the time of the bin Laden killing and the fact that um, obviously relations between Ankara and Washington haven't been at an all-time high uh, recently. 
Uh, I think that an analogy is made more outside of Turkey, uh, and here the debate is taking place in a very different uh, direction and more sort of focused on all the injustices uh, that have been uh, done to Turkey by United States, starting with the coup. So this is the domestic debate is far more insular and nationalistic. But of course, in Washington, I think we know that obviously Turkey is different from Pakistan in the sense that it's a NATO country and the relationship is multidimensional and institutional and not just foreign military aid and not just counterterrorism. Having said all that, I think there really has been a good deal of bad blood from the Turkish side, of course, the uh, U.S. support for Syrian uh, Kurds and also the coup attempt, which Erdogan to this day, I think, times a certain uh, quite a serious level of culpability to the United States. And on the U.S. side, I think there is a feeling that at least with the CENTCOM, which is operating right outside of Turkey, but not the, uh, but not in Turkey, there, there is a sense that Turkey is obstructing what they're trying to do, that the Kurds are a better partner, etc. We hear actually officials saying this, unnamed officials often uh, remarking that Kurds are better partners than that Turkey has been, you know, the troop withdrawal or the Turkish operation has hindered efforts to fight ISIS and so on. Uh, but the issue is, of course, Turkey has been a NATO partner for a number of years. It is not irreplaceable, but it, it has a huge uh, amount of U.S. military presence. Injurlik base is there. That base is not the, we, we have uh, nuclear warheads. Uh, and, and of course, it's a, you know, the, the Turkish-U.S. relationship is beyond just Syria. It's trade. It's also counterterrorism. But it is going through a rough patch. And every other month, there is a desire for a reset on a different level. And okay, let's do a reset and let's start and we're going to scale back on the Kurds and we're, you do this, we do that. But it just never happens. I think Ankara has made the mistake of bypassing institutional frameworks and sort of not paying attention to what's happening in U.S. public opinion or the global public opinion or Congress or European Parliament and whatnot, and just focusing Erdogan's relationship with, with, with President Trump. So that is, the at this point, almost the only threat that, that connects the two countries. Trump clearly wanting to salvage the relationship but facing a bureaucracy and Congress, a public opinion that's increasingly questioning the merits of the pullback and the sort of the, the depth of the relationship with Turkey. So Anthony, why don't we now pivot to the question of foreign fighters? I mean, one of the big fears, as you said, is that ISIS will somehow be able to regroup. And one of the big parts of that question are, are all the people from around the world that have made their way to support the creation of this caliphate, many of whom uh, were in prisons which were controlled by the Kurds. And now with the American pullback, there is a lot of fear about what, what could happen to these fighters. And that is leading to a debate in European capitals about whether we should at least repatriate the, the European nationals, for countries to, to take responsibility for their own citizens currently at large. Yes, that's right. And this was really a big issue for European countries even before the Turkish incursion, because it's been months or in some case of some of these fighters years since they were captured. There are lots of European citizens who are being held by the Syrian Democratic Forces, among many other foreign nationals. Uh, and this was always clearly a kind of interim arrangement. The SDF doesn't have the capacity to hold these people in the long term, you know, there are tens of thousands of women and children in these refugee camps guarded only by a, a few hundred uh, Kurdish forces. 
And already we saw a kind of regrowth of ISIS within some of these camps. You know, the biggest camp, Al-Hol, sometimes described as the Al-Hol province of the, of the Islamic State, because uh, a lot of the more radical prisoners have kind of seized control of the camp and are kind of terrorizing some of the other inmates and the security forces, you know, often are attacked by the prisoners and so on. So it, it was already a kind of situation where clearly it was unsustainable. But the European policy, I think, can best be characterized as kicking the can down the road because they didn't have any good solution for what to do with these their European fighters and European ISIS family members there. They've been reluctant to bring them back uh, to Europe because that was politically so unpopular. And there are a variety of complications about how many could be prosecuted, how long they would serve in prison and so on. And so they've been kind of casting around for some other option within the region, you know, an international tribunal or perhaps having them tried in Iraq. None of these options are really playing out. And I think what the Turkish move has done is to kind of accelerate the sense that we really have to resolve this because, first of all, it's increased the likelihood of escapes as the SDF transfers resources to face the threat of Turkish and allied forces. And it's also, in some cases, the camps have actually been somewhat overrun by fighting. And then also there's a danger that that the Syrian regime could somehow get its hands on some of these captives because of the, the deal that the SDF has done with Assad. So it's increased the urgency. It hasn't yet come up with a solution. But, you know, what I feel very strongly in arguing the paper is that bringing European citizens back home is really by far the best solution, despite the complications that it involves. And that, you know, delaying is only going to make things worse and that European countries should really start to act now. They should have started already, but they should start to act now. And what do you say to the different governments that say that's impossible? The German, the head of the German intelligence agency, Bruno Karl, uh, the BND, said yesterday that it was just not practical to, to bring German citizens home. The, the UK government famously made some of these citizens stateless and used the fact that they had potential dual nationality to remove their British citizenship, probably the way that they would um, describe it. And um, also talked about, you know, the, the difficulty they have justifying risking British lives in order to save people who have made a self-conscious choice to become terrorists and to join a terrorist organization? Well, I think really the best response is where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, these countries in many cases have taken people out. They've taken out the people that are easiest politically to take out, which is orphans and unaccompanied children. And you know that's because there isn't an issue of do we separate them from the mothers or do we bring back the mothers as well? But people have come out. You know, in most cases, the areas where the camps are are not currently scenes of fighting. They remain under SDF control. People who've been there say that the passage between the camps and the Iraqi border, you know, is passable, it is safe. And I think a lot of times what we hear are kind of, you know, the difficulties being exaggerated. But I think if there was a determination to do it, it would probably be a good way for European countries to do it together. Forces that are in the region could help provide security. They could be brought out in a convoy. You know, some of the smaller countries, clearly it's a bigger undertaking. But I think that they are making a lot out of the logistical and in some cases the judicial obstacles, because really partly it's just politically very uncomfortable for them to do it. 
May I just chime in here uh, just to sort of support the very important points that Anthony is making. At the end of the day, we're not talking about tens of thousands of people. We are, in terms of the foreign fighters, talking about people that could be described in the, in the hundreds. So it, shouldn't, it couldn't be the case that it's impossible for the EU uh, member states as a whole together or separately to handle this burden, so to speak. I think uh, that uh, all in all, 10,000 fighters, ISIS fighters in prison right now. But Anthony, help me out here. I think the foreign fighters are that come from Europe is something in the vicinity of uh, a few hundred, 600, 700, is that it, from the EU member state? Yeah, some, some of the estimates even are a little bit lower, 400 to 500 um, adult men and, and adult men and women. That's really, logistically speaking, that cannot be an impossibility for the EU. And what you're saying that the European forces in the region could help them out, which, which forces were you talking about, Anthony? Well, I'm talking about British and French special forces that are there on the ground. But they could take hundreds of people out of the country. No, I think they, the SDF has said, has, and apparently continues to say, that they would be willing to organise a handover. Essentially, you would have a convoy taken from the camps to the Iraqi border, and then they could be handed over under the supervision of Iraqi forces and taken to an air base in Iraq, in Iraqi Kurdistan, for instance, and flown out from there. And this is generally what's happened with the, the orphans, the children that have come out so far. And I think it is not logistically impossible. I think that brings us to the, the end of the main discussion. I think we'll see in the weeks ahead both what happens to, to the so-called Islamic State in the post-Baghdadi era, but also I'm sure this debate about the foreign fighters will just continue to get more and more lively in different European capitals. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Um, Asla, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Mark, I'm reading a novel by a favorite author, William Boyd, Sweet Caress. In fact, I picked it up in London uh, a few weeks ago. But basically, it's just become too crazy and nerve-wracking in our part of the world, not just what's happening with in Syria and the Turkish incursion and sort of ISIS raids, and, but, but also one feels the, the, the heat coming from basically Iraq, the, the, the sort of events unfolding in Lebanon. So I really felt I, need, I can't read any more nonfiction. So I'm finding refuge in a novel about a photographer during the First and Second World War. Uh, at least that's uh, history. <laughs> What about you, Anthony? Well, I've picked up a couple of books here in the States. Uh, maybe I'll start to read them on the plane on the way back. Um, one is, it is a nonfiction book about very much this subject. It's called They Will Have to Die Now by James Verini. It's a kind of reporter's eyewitness account, apparently very well written, about the battle for Mosul, the kind of you know first big significant loss that the Islamic State suffered and the, the fight to retake that. And then I also picked up a novel by an American writer that I like. He's called Ben Lerner, and the book is called The Topeka School, and it's the story of an American family, as, as many American novels are. So I will obviously recommend Anthony's paper, Beyond Good and Evil. And um, I also just started reading a very interesting book by British computer scientist who's based in California called Stuart Russell, and his book's called Human Compatible, AI and the Problem of Control which is a fascinating account of the, the dangers of us creating supercomputers and how um, important it is for us to, to think about 
the ethical issues around artificial intelligence before we create the technical capabilities which could lead to our eventual death and destruction. So that brings this podcast to an end. There'll be links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please let other people know about it by tweeting about it, writing on your social media page, and above all, by using whatever platform you're on at the moment to listen to this podcast on to give us a fantastic review so that other people can find out about the podcast. But for now, from Asla Aydin Tashpash, Anthony Dworkin, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Achenbrush, and our editor is Marlene Rigo.